How's everybody today? We're finishing up our uh, our series of the seven letters today, and uh, it feels like it's gone by really quick. I don't know if that's just me or if you feel that, but uh, um, you know, we're seven weeks into this, and it just yeah, it feels like it's flown by. But hopefully. Hopefully uh, we've learned some things. Hopefully we've learned uh, some context for uh, what Jesus has to say uh, to the churches then and what Jesus has to say to the churches now. Uh, today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, and we're going to be looking at the church at Laodicea. And so before we get into the text, one of the things we've been trying to do in this is to try to give some historical uh, context because uh, it seems that this historical context is pretty important in understanding uh, what Jesus is actually saying. And so I want to take a couple of minutes and just talk a little bit about Laodicea and kind of lay some groundwork that hopefully uh, is going to help us to understand as we make our way through these verses uh, what Jesus is saying to us. And so it's important to understand, first and foremost, that Laodicea was a major cultural center of its day. There were some major trade routes that converged in Laodicea. So it got a lot of traffic, a lot of, a lot of out-of-towners coming in. And they were known for a few things. They were known, one, as a banking and a finance center. So it was a wealthy city. And to give you an idea of how wealthy this city was, it was around AD 60, there was an earthquake that destroyed Laodicea. And uh, much like today, we have FEMA. Um, The Roman government of its day had something similar, and they offered uh, financial help in the way of emergency funds to Laodicea to help recover from this earthquake. And Laodicea was so wealthy and so proud of their wealth that they declined the help. So it would be like FEMA coming in for a disaster and us saying, no thanks, FEMA, we got this, we can can do it on our own. Um, So the people that lived there were very affluent. Uh, The second thing that Laodicea was known for is that they were known uh, for the textile industry. They produced this soft black wool that was used to make uh, luxurious garments uh, and carpets. And then the third thing that they were known for is that they had this school of medicine there. And this particular uh, school of medicine uh, did a lot of things, but they specialized in particular uh, in diseases of the eye. And so they produced this salve that would go on your eye. And it was so effective that people would travel from all over to come to Laodicea uh, to get their uh, ailments of their eye treated. So those were kind of the three big things that Laodicea was known for. Another thing that they uh, were known as is that a few miles away, there were a couple of cities, um, Colossae, which you may be familiar with from our book of Colossians in the Bible, uh, and Hierapolis. And Colossae was known for having this cold, refreshing spring as their source of water. Hierapolis was known for having its source of water as a hot spring, uh, that was more therapeutic, but Laodicea didn't have a source of water that was right there next to it. And so they had to build these aqueducts, and via these aqueducts they would bring in this, this cold water from the spring over at Colossae, this hot water from the spring at Hierapolis. But by the time the water traveled the several miles to get to Laodicea, the cold water was no longer cold, the hot water was no longer hot. Right? It was tepid water. And uh, think about... When you drink your morning coffee, like you want your coffee kind of piping hot, right? Because there's just something about hot coffee that gets you going in the morning. But after you let it set for a while and your coffee becomes tepid, not so much, right? You don't, you don't want to drink it. So like there's value to cold water, there's value to hot water, but, but this tepid water uh, didn't do much for them. And not only was it tepid, but it also tasted kind of funky. 
Uh, there were a lot of minerals in the water. And so uh, people would often take a drink of it, like out-of-towners would come, and they would take a drink of the water, and they would spit it out because it tasted so funny. And it kind of, I don't know if, you have, if anyone's ever been to Ashland, Oregon, but down in Lithia Park in Ashland, uh, they have this drinking fountain, and it's kind of a fun thing if you live down there uh, to take visitors to Lithia Park and say, oh, there's a drinking fountain, go take a drink of it. And it's like this sulfur water that people take a drink of it, and they just spit it out because it's, it's just unexpectedly gross. This was kind of like the water uh, at Laos de Sia. So not only was it not cold, not only was it not hot, but it also tasted weird. And so according to um, some, or one particular historian, there was a Roman historian named Tacitus. And Tacitus said of Laodicea, uh, said that Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. So, so a member of the Roman government, uh, a historian for the government, acknowledged um, just the pride that Laodicea had. Another uh, theologian uh, said that the city and the church were not all that much different. They saw themselves as self-sufficient, both the city and the church. They did not need the help of anyone, including God. They were just fine all by themselves. The church, for sure, was badly deceived. And so this is some of the context as we jump into uh, what Christ has to say to the church at Laodicea. So let's jump into uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church at Laodicea write... The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And we'll stop there for just a moment. All these letters start off um, to the angel of the church at, and then the name of the church. And and we've kind of maintained through this series, like, like there's a couple of different ways that, that you could look at who this angel is. Like, is it an actual angel, an angelic, uh, celestial, heavenly kind of being? Um, but, but we've kind of maintained that this is, probably more likely, uh, the word angel means messenger. It's probably more likely a, a physical person who delivered the letter to the church. Um, not standing hard and fast on that. You, you can study for yourself and, and see if that's something um, you know that, that suits your fancy, but that's just kind of what seems to make the most sense. Uh, and so uh, it says, write the words of the amen. This is the only place in the Bible where we see amen used as a title. The word amen is all throughout the Bible. It's often translated, uh, depending on what version you have, uh, most assuredly uh, or verily or truly. could be any of those things, again, depending on which version you use. The word appears uh, nine times throughout Revelation and many, many times uh, throughout Scripture. But again, this is the only place that it's used as a title. And so we have to ask the question, well, what, what does this mean? What does this mean, the words of the amen? Second um, Corinthians chapter one, verse 20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in him, meaning Christ. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so truth, absolute truth, uh, finds its fulfillment in the person and in the work of Christ. And at the outset of this letter, Jesus is identifying himself or what he's saying as the words of the amen, the words of the absolute truth, the words of the so be it, the words of the truly, truly uh, that, that he's about to speak. And then he refers to himself as the faithful and true witness. And if we back up just a few verses into Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says this, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who is and was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So Jesus refers to himself as a faithful and as a true witness. And in one of the letters to the other churches, he refers to himself as that also. That Jesus is the one who is faithful to obey the will of his Father. Jesus was the one who came to earth and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That his whole life was about pointing all of creation to the Father. So he's the faithful and he's the true witness. And then he's the beginning of God's creation. And there's a couple of ways that we can look at what this means to say that he's the beginning of God's creation. And, and one way to not look at it is that it's not saying he's the beginning of creation as in he's the first created thing. It's important that we understand that, that Jesus was not created. Jesus is eternal with the Father, with the Spirit, and the Son, that they dwell together as, as the triune God for all of eternity. So Jesus is not the beginning of creation in that he was created. The idea is more like that he's the origin of creation, that everything begins with him. John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was what? The Word. Capital W word, meaning it's a title referring to a person. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That tells us that everything that was created was created through him. Not, there's nothing that was created that wasn't created through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, has this to say about Jesus. It says that he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If that doesn't establish the authority of Jesus, I don't know what does. In Matthew chapter 28, before Jesus gives what we call the Great Commission to, to go into the world and make disciples, he prefaces this command with saying, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Not, not some, not most, but all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And what we just read in Colossians tells us that everything was created by him and for him, and he's the one that makes it all work, and he's the one that holds it all together. He's preeminent over everything, meaning he's the first. He controls everything. There's not an Adam, I think it is, that Abraham Kuyper would say, that, that isn't in the control of Jesus himself in the entirety of the universe. This is the one who's writing these words. The amen, the faithful witness, the beginning of creation. And so given that intro, you kind of wonder, okay, what's he going to say? <laughs> given that setup that, that, that everything is by him, for him, through him, what's he going to say? And in verse 15, he says, I know your works. Have you ever, maybe as a dad, I've, I've done this before to my kids when they were little. They would come home from school and knowing very well, because maybe we got a call from a teacher that day how school went, you would ask them, what happened at school today? Oh, nothing. Really? Let me ask, let me ask again, what happened at school today? Right? I, I know what happened at school today. <laughs> right? I know. Jesus is saying, I know your works. 
And what are these works that he knows? He says that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, that's a pretty scathing indictment if we stop right there. Right? I know. I know your works. Remember our context. This is, this is a town of affluent people who are pretty proud of themselves and pretty proud of what they've been able to produce out of Laodicea, pretty proud of what they have been able to build this city into a major cultural center. And we get to a point where, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but the, the church doesn't look a whole lot different than, than the world in this context. And Jesus says, I know, I know your works. He says, you're neither hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And this is a, a passage of scripture that, that is often kind of butchered, really. Misunderstood and, and butchered in the way that it's taught. The way that we would often teach us or that maybe you've heard this taught in the past is that, that somebody might say that, that God would prefer that you either be for him or against him, but not indifferent to him. And that's not what is being said here. Remember, as we think about the water flowing in, the, the cold spring water, the hot spring water flowing in, cold spring water is refreshing and useful. Hot spring water is therapeutic and useful. But this tepid, lukewarm water that tastes funky, you put it in your mouth and your first reaction is to spit it out. Because it's useless. It's not really good for anything, is it? And what Jesus is saying to the church here is that you've gotten to a place where, church, you're useless. He's not saying before me or against me, but not indifferent to me. He's saying that you're useless. You're not cold water that's refreshing. You're not hot water that's therapeutic. You're lukewarm water that, that I just want to spit it out of my mouth because it's disgusting. Right? Scathing indictment. He's calling out the church for being useless. And then if that's not bad enough, he says that you say that you're rich. You say that you've prospered. You say that you need nothing. And that feels pretty good as a human being, doesn't it? I don't know if any of you are at a point in your life where you could say, I don't need much of anything. I don't know how many of you might be at a point in life where you don't necessarily have to live paycheck to paycheck because you've been able to build and to save and, and, the, and you know, good for you if that's you. But Jesus is saying to this church that, that they don't realize that they aren't rich. They don't realize that their prosperity doesn't mean anything. They, they don't realize that they actually have a greater need than what their wealth can provide. And so he says, you're not rich. You haven't prospered. You do have needs. So much so that you're wretched, that you're pitiable, that you're poor, that you're blind, and that you're naked. So it's like this scathing indictment. It just gets worse and worse and worse as we make our way down the list. To, to be wretched is to be the lowest of the low. To be pitiable is that, that people would look on you and take pity. And I think of the Apostle Paul as, as he writes to the Corinthians about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and he talks about how without the resurrection, really the wheels fall off of the bus of Christianity. It all hinges on the resurrection of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says that if we as Christians buy into this idea of the resurrected Christ, and if later it turns out to not be true, do you know what he says? He says that we are the most pitiable of all people anywhere because we've bought into a sham. And here's Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, 
telling the church at Laodicea that, that they're wretched, that they're, that they're low, that they're pitiable, that, that they're so blind, they're so deceived, they've so bought into the ideals of the culture of their day that he looks upon them with pity. He says that they're poor. Now that's a statement because, remember, this is a banking center. This is a financial center. This would be like you, know, you and I going to Wall Street and you know, finding some hedge fund manager and saying, man, you're, you're really poor. Right? It would be just a ridiculous statement. But Jesus is speaking to the affluence, to the wealth of their culture. This is unlike the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna, they actually thought they were poor, and Jesus said to them, what? You're not poor, that you're, you're rich. And not rich in this life necessarily, not rich according to what the world says is rich. I read a statistic quite a while back that says 51% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. That was probably five years ago, so I don't know what that number would be today, but I don't imagine it's changed all that much. 51% of the world lives on less than $2 a day. Who's the rich one? We're the rich ones. The church at Laodicea thought they were rich, but they were actually, according to Jesus, poor. They, they trusted in their wealth. They trusted in their ability to produce. And in so doing, they, they set aside trusting in Christ. They saw that their, maybe one of their greatest needs was to continue to produce, to continue to build their wealth and their affluence. And Christ would tell them that not only are they poor, but he might say that they were spiritually bankrupt. They might have had a lot of money in their bank accounts. They might have had nice houses. And, and you know the Bible doesn't begrudge us for having those things in and of themselves. But, but the indictment of Jesus is that you're trusting in those things so much that spiritually, like your spiritual bank account is completely empty. And maybe even at a negative balance, amassing overdraft fees one after one after one. And so they don't actually have anything. He says that they're blind, and he's speaking again to this cultural thing that they have where, where people travel from all around the world to get their eyes fixed at Laodicea. And Jesus calls them out and says, you know what? You, you might be able to fix eyes medically. You might have these technological advances that allows you to be the, this cultural center where people can come and get medically treated, but, but you're really sick. You're blind. You're blind in a spiritual sense. They can help restore the, the physical side of people struggling to see, but their own condition they're completely oblivious to. He calls them naked, speaking to uh, the textile industry that they're proud of, right? The, these black, this black wool that they make, and they make these luxurious garments. Think of Rodeo Drive might be uh, in Laodicea back in the day where you would go to buy the finest of clothes, the, the highest quality, the most expensive of clothes. It was an industry, as we've said, that they're very proud of. And Jesus comes in and says, not only are you blind, but these nice clothes that, that you're so proud of, these luxurious clothes that you love to show off, he's like, you, you might as well be naked spiritually. You're standing there bare and exposed because I know your works and I can see for what it is. I think about back in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis when God created the heavens and the earth and the bugs and the fish and the birds and, and everything therein. And he created as at the, the pinnacle of creation mankind. He created Adam and he created Eve. And the Bible tells us that they, that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Because before sin entered the world, it wasn't a shameful thing to stand bare and exposed before 
one another. But there came this moment where sin entered the world. Creation rebelled against the Creator. And in so doing, sin entered the world. And there came a moment where they realized, the Bible says, that they were naked. They realized and, and they were ashamed. And what do they do? They went and hid. They hid and they had to, to make clothes to, to cover up the shame of their nakedness. And, and Jesus, in his scathing indictment to the church at Laodicea, says that like you're, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind. All of this is to say that the Laodiceans needed something that they were unable to in all that they were able to do, they needed something that they were unable to provide for themselves. Their supposed self-sufficiency was actually not sufficient at all. Not only was it not not sufficient, like it wasn't this kind of neutral, just not sufficient, it was actually insufficient. It fell woefully short of what they actually needed. And so that, that's the indictment. That's the bad news. And then in verse 18, uh, Jesus gives them a way to rectify this. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And so he gives them this counsel, he gives this, this indictment, he establishes authority, like I know everything, I control everything, everything's for me, I'm the one that's over all of creation, I know your works, they're not good. You're naked, you're poor, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're blind, but that's not the end of the story. He says, here's what we can do about this. He says, buy from me gold refined from the fire so that you may be rich. And he's not talking about physical gold. He's not talking about just a different investment vehicle at the banking center of the culture. He's saying, buy something that you can only get from me, a spiritual gold that's pure, far more pure than, than anything that you can produce. And when you buy gold from me, when you look to Christ, he says that that's where you find a richness that the goods of this world can never provide you. The banking center of your day can, cannot build you enough wealth that can make you right with God. Jesus says you can only find that from me. And he says, buy a white garment so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, in our day, like black and white have some connotations, right? Uh, when I was a kid, I used to love to watch the black and white uh, Lone Ranger show, right? Hi-O Silver. And the Lone Ranger, like he rode a white horse and his cowboy hat was white. And, and the bad guys, maybe they would ride black horses and maybe they would have black cowboy hats, right? And the connotation was that the good guys wear white and the bad guys wear black. And Jesus is telling them this, this, this garment, this black garment that you produce, as fine as it might be, as luxurious, as quality as it might be, he's saying, you need to buy from me white garments, white garments that, that would represent his righteousness, it would represent the purity that only comes from God himself. He says, when you do that, then, then your nakedness will be covered up. Your shame won't be seen. And what a neat picture of just the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins and all of our unrighteousness. 
as fancy as we might want to dress up today, as fancy as they may have dressed in their day, right? What, what's the saying? Like you can put lipstick on a pig. Like there's only so much that you can do. There, there's, we can't look good enough to cover up our unrighteousness. There's only one way to have our righteousness covered, and that's buying white garments from Christ to clothe our righteousness and to cover the shame of our nakedness. And he says to buy from him salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says that that it's the God of this age who has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. The God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And Jesus is saying there's only one way to have your spiritual sight given to you. And it's to buy from him salve to open your eyes. Not necessarily that you can physically see that you can go from 2030 to 2020 vision. He's not talking about that. He's saying that spiritually you're blind. And there's only one way to restore this sight, and that's to come to him. So think about the things that we look for in life for fulfillment. We, we, we look for joy. We look for purpose. We look for satisfaction. These are things that we often try and find in careers and relationships and material possessions, just to name a few things. But ultimately, fulfillment, joy, purpose, satisfaction, these are things that, that Jesus is telling the church at Laodicea. There's only one, one place that you can ultimately find these things. And it's not in your wealth. It's not in your technological, medical advancements. It's not in your ability to look good. These things can only be found as we come to him. And this is his counsel. This is his counsel to the ones who are wretched and poor and pitiable and blind and naked is to stop trusting in your affluence, your wealth, stop trusting in your own abilities to produce what only can be found in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 25 gives us a glimpse into the problem of sin and it says this, it says that they, meaning humanity, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and they served the creator uh, the creature, uh, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We, we can wrap up the entirety of our thoughts about sin in, in that one sentence. Is that as created things, that, that we've worshipped other created things rather than the creator who is above all created things. And what one author in a book I read not long ago defined worship as bending one's knee to one's highest perceived beauty. When the Apostle Paul says that they worship created things, he's not talking about that they, they got together and they sang a few songs to the created things. He's talking about that there was this bending of the knee to a perceived beauty that, that wasn't God. And God has created us as beings who worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether you know this or not. We, we don't get a choice as humans created by God, we, we are hardwired to worship someone or something all of the time. And so the question becomes, what or who are we worshiping in a given moment? So, so it's something that we get to aim, we get to direct it somewhere. The Apostle Paul is saying that the problem of sin, the problem of humanity is that we direct our worship at things that don't ultimately deserve it. We direct our worship at created things rather than the one who created those things. And this is the problem of the church at Laodicea. 
so a scathing indictment, but we're not without some hope here. If you notice that um, in some of the seven letters, most of the seven letters, Jesus has some positive things to say about most of the churches. Hey, you got, you got a few good things here, but you know, here's some things that aren't so good. There's nothing good that he said to the church at Laodicea. It's all, all of it is just an indictment. But we get a little bit of hope in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so there's a glimmer of hope here that Jesus has love for the church at Laodicea because he's reproving them, because he's disciplining them. And so he gives them this counsel to, to look to me for the things that only can be found in me. And he says, be zealous and repent. In other words, like repent right away and, and be glad to repent. Be glad that I'm reproving you. Be glad that I'm disciplining you because it's a sign of my love for you. What would not be good is if in verse 19, he said, those whom I love, I reprove, but I'll see you guys later. That wouldn't be good. That wouldn't be good. But there's some good news here that Jesus is engaging in discipline to a church that's gone off the rails because he loves them. Then he goes into verse 20, another uh, verse that's often misquoted and butchered. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, maybe you've, you've heard this passage taught sometimes in churches where maybe at the end of a service they would come up and they would turn down the lights. Maybe somebody like Randy would get up and strum softly on a guitar and they would say, close your eyes. They would say, Jesus is standing here. He's, he's knocking at the door of your heart. You need to answer the door and let him in. We use this as, as an evangelistic passage. But, but think about who, who is it that Jesus is talking to here? He, he's not talking to unbelievers. He, he's not trying to evangelize a lost world. He's talking to a church that's gone off the rails. And he's saying, hey, I'm out here. Are you going to let me in? Can I, can I come back into my church? Remember the passage in Colossians that we read at the very beginning that, that talked about that he's, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's preeminent. All things were created by him and for him, and he's the one that holds everything together. Did you, you remember the other part in that where it says, oh, and also not, not only is Jesus the one who's created everything, not only is it Jesus who holds everything together, not only is he the preeminent thing over all creation and sovereign over all, but Colossians chapter one says that also he's the head of the church. He's the greatest thing in all of creation, sovereign over all God of the universe. Nothing happens anywhere outside of his watchful eye and He's the head of the church. And here's this church at Laodicea that the picture that Jesus is giving him is saying that you've put me, the head of the church, on the outside of the church. I'd like to come back in. And it's not that Jesus needs their permission to come back in. It's not that he's incapable of opening the door or just busting down the door. But because he loves them, he's giving them an opportunity to repent and say, hey, let me back in the church again. There would be no more scathing indictment of a church to say that they've left Christ on the outside. I can't imagine a worse indictment of a church. And Jesus isn't offended by this. He didn't get his feelings hurt. He just said, let me back in. Let me back into my church. 
I love you. And I'm for you. And I desire that you repent. In Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 40, there's a story that goes like this. It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left the house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. All of that to say that that, that we ought to live lives that are vigilant, lives that are looking for the return of Christ. And the church at Laodicea is a church that has has completely put him on the outside. And and this story tells us that there's actually a reward for those who who wait vigilantly for the return of Christ. That when the master shows up to the house and when we open the door and we let him in, there's something that happens. He says that he'll get dressed for service and he'll recline at table. That might not mean much to us today, but back in Jesus' day, you know, they didn't have big dining room tables and high back chairs and things like that. They would often eat at these low tables that were down on the floor. And in the absence of you know nice comfy high back chairs, that they would lean on each other as they sat around this table and, and eating a meal together was this very intimate thing, right? You don't just invite anybody over to lean on their chest while you eat your food. That's you do that with people that you're close to. You do that with people with whom you have an intimate relationship. And, and we're told here that, that as we vigilantly await the return of Christ, as we listen for that knock on the door, and as we open when we hear that knock on the door, that there's going to be an intimacy that we get to have with the one who's over all creation, the one who's preeminent, the one who has all authority, and the one who happens to also be the head of the church. What we have in Laodicea are so-called followers of Christ who actually aren't following Christ. That doesn't make sense, does it? And Jesus is rebuking them for that and calling them to repentance of it. And so we have to ask the question, okay, this is what Jesus was saying to the churches then. Well, what is Jesus saying to the church now? That that maybe, maybe in some ways, we're not a lot different than the church at Laodicea. And I'm not talking about our church in particular, I'm just thinking evangelical Christianity as a whole in America right now, maybe doesn't look a whole lot like the Christianity of the Bible. And not to, to beat a dead horse or to bring up something that we've brought up a lot in the last year, but you know we, we see things unfold on the news um, perpetrated by so-called evangelicals that are anything but evangelical. Right? We, we've mixed our Christianity with our nationalism. And it doesn't look, it looks more nationalistic than it does Christian. And, and I think that, that an honest look would have to say that I hope that we're not in danger of becoming like the church at Laodicea, that as we've engaged in the things of our culture and the things of our day, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be engaged in culture, but as we have engaged, some of those things have taken priority over Christ. And I hope that, that if Jesus were to come today, that he wouldn't say, hey guys, you've pushed me to the outside. Can I come back in? 
He says, to the one who conquers, to the one who repents, the one who zealously repents, the one who realizes that we've pushed Jesus to the outside, when, when we bring him back to the inside, back to the center, when we zealously repent, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne just as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And he says, to the one who has an ear, looking around, everybody's got an ear. So this is everybody, right? This is just a way of saying, everybody pay attention to this. This is for everybody. Everybody hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what the Spirit is saying to the church at Laodicea is repent for pushing Christ to the outside. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of missionary Jim Elliott, but Jim Elliott and, and a group of men, uh, gosh, I think back in the 50s a while ago, uh, went to this tribal area, I think in Ecuador. And they went to evangelize this cannibalistic tribe and they showed up on their boat and the cannibals immediately killed them and did their thing. And it seemed like this kind of failed missionary endeavor. Later, his wife went back to this tribe that killed her husband and evangelized this tribe. And today there are many believers in this tribe. But Jim Elliott has a famous quote that maybe you've heard before. And it goes like this. It says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that again. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And I think this might be a message, not only for the church at Laodicea, but a message for us today. Are we willing to give up the things that we can't keep so that we can ultimately have the things that we can't lose? The wealth of this world, the things of this world, one day are going to burn. Well, one day they're just going to be gone. They're going to disappear. But God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is eternal and will remain for all of eternity. And are we willing to set aside the things that ultimately we can't take to the grave with us, the things that we can't keep? Are we willing to set those things aside in order to gain the one thing that if we gain it, we can never, ever, ever lose? And so for us as a church, I think we constantly have to be vigilant, constantly have to ask ourselves, are we pushing Christ to the outside? As pastors, we work really hard to make sure that that everything we do is centered upon God's word. And we're not perfect, and we, we fail at it as, as time goes on. But we work really hard to make sure that, that we're not putting Christ to the outside. But, but it's, it's got to be, like it can't just be an effort of the pastors. This has to be kind of a team effort of everybody that's here listening online. This is a team effort of everybody who considers the door of their church. It's an effort that we all must engage in to make sure that we're not pushing Christ to the outside and that he's not standing at our door saying, hey, can I come back into my church? And so I would ask you as we close out the seven letters to consider to consider the, the way that you live. And I'm not going to stand up here ever and say that you know we shouldn't have the things of this world, that we shouldn't build save, retire, all these kinds of things. The Bible doesn't condemn those things in and of themselves. It's just when those things become way more important than they ought to, that they become a problem. And so we have to be vigilant and constantly consider our life and to consider, is Christ the center of my life? Because if Christ is not the center of my life, I can't help Christ be the center of my church. We have a group of people that are dedicated to saying Christ is the center of my life. Then we have a church that's dedicated to saying Christ is the center of what we do. And so I would challenge you with that. And I would challenge you even in 
the entirety of the seven letters. What is it that Christ has spoken to you? And what areas has Christ called you maybe to repentance, to change? To say that I was going this way and I'm going to turn and go this way now because I've realized through God's grace, because he loves me, that there are things that need to change, the things that need to be different. And hear what the Spirit says, for those of you that have ears to hear. We pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful today. Thankful that you uh, care for us. Thankful that you uh, don't easily and quickly become offended at um, our lack of obedience to you, our lack of submission. Thankful that you're patient and that you contend with us uh, far longer than probably we would contend uh, with ourselves if we were in your spot. We're thankful that you give us opportunity to repent, that you give us opportunity to see where we've got off the rails and that you call us uh, back to uh, right living with you. And so I would pray for all of us today that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And not only that we would hear, but that we would be responsive to what the Spirit is saying to us. And that we would not find ourselves uh, living lives that have pushed you to the side. That we would not find ourselves living lives that trust uh, in our own um, abilities. Uh, that we would not uh, be found living lives that trust in our uh, our own uh, things that we produce, things that we do, but that we would live lives that ultimately trust you uh, for our very next breath, uh, let alone our next paycheck or our next meal um, or what the future may bring. And so, Father, I uh, pray that you would continually remind us of our great need for you and your great love for us. Uh, and then as we remember those two things, uh, that we would constantly be drawn to you more and more uh, all of the time. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.